Are you willing to change your mind on a controversial topic? Welcome, my mere mortalites, to another round of the Mere Mortals book reviews. My name is Kyron, host of the Mere Mortals podcast, but also this one where I dive deeper into the books that I'm reading to give you the juicy information, a little review of what I think of the book, some topics that we can take out for it, and maybe we can even change our minds, which is indeed what we have today. It is the book, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan, with the subtitle, The New Science of Psychedelics. So this book was published in 2018 and it's 400 to 450 pages in length, depending on if you count glossaries and bibliographies and all those sorts of things in your reading. So it took me uh, about seven hours to really get through in total. It's a dive into the North American history of psychedelics and I suppose the upcoming science also in North America of what is being studied with psychedelics and, and how they're being treated. So it focuses primarily on three different types and these are LSD, so lysergic acid diethylamide, which was the famously uh, in, invented, found, created by uh, Albert Hoffman. And then we have psilocybin. So this is the one you'll typically find in magic mushrooms. And finally, DMT, also known as dimethyltryptamine, which you can find in ones such as ayahuasca and in the toad. Um, so which is kind of like a toad, which produces it in its, um, it's like it's kind of poison uh, thing on its back. Now, this book in total, I wouldn't say is overly scientific, but it does contain many anecdotes of studies and things like that. And there's a, a fair bit of kind of subjective ponderings and, and trip reports and um, um, ideas about what psychedelics do and theories and whatnot. So it, it kind of mixes, I guess, the science as well as the, the more subjective part. So there are six chapters. There's a prologue and an epilogue. And as I mentioned, there was that etc. part, which has all of the things like the glossary, acknowledgements, notes, bibliography, index. I'll quickly run through these so you have an idea of what is here. So we have chapter one, a renaissance, chapter two, natural history, beshroomed and decoder, chapter three, history, the first wave, part one, the promise, part two, the crack up and the uh, coda, chapter four, travelogue, journeying underground, trip one, LSD, trip two, psilocybin, trip three, five, MEO, DMT or the toad. Chapter five, the neuroscience, your brain on psychedelics. Chapter six, the trip treatment, psychedelics and psychotherapy. One dying, two addiction, three depression, and then we have the coda. So a fair bit of stuff going on there. <laughs> and in terms of the author himself, Michael Pollan, he is a journalist, author, and I believe you can even find a series on Netflix based on this book itself if you are more of a, a, um, a watcher or a videoer than a, an actual reader. He's more notable for his food books. So these are things diving into um, kind of the science of food, subjective experiences with that and whatnot. And his style of writing is very similar to Malcolm Gladwell. So if you've checked out my review of David and Goliath on this channel, you get a, f a feeling of, of how he writes. And uh, there's, there's a, a many an overlap in kind of styles on the way they, they structure their books. So let's get on to the first theme. And for this, I have written down the science. What can we say for certain? So the problem with <laughs> psychedelics is that they, they really hover between this, these two worlds of the subjective and then also the, the kind of objective. We'll start with the, the history and there's a troubled history for sure. And especially if you're looking from a, a North American perspective and especially US perspective on this. 
and it's hard to go past someone like uh, Timothy Leary. So he was a, a professor at Harvard in, I'm going to say the 1960s. So this was right around the age when kind of LSD was, was gaining prop- popularity. People really starting to know about it. And it was diffusing into the culture more. And so this is where it was kind of got mixed up with the hippie culture. Um, Timothy Leary himself was uh, labeled as the most dangerous man in America by the then president, Richard Nixon. Uh, and his mm, scientific studies of uh, LSD and of uh, psychedelics were questionable, to say the least. They weren't, they weren't super, super rock solid. And so uh, he ended up getting kicked out of, of Harvard and basically... I, I say you could categorize this period of um, there was this new new substance, new drug, and uh, it was adopted by a lot of exuberant researchers. So this is people who would likely take it themselves whilst also studying the effects of it on other people, which led to poorly designed, controlled and reported studies. And this is when it started to get political. And basically, in the end, the FDA, the federal drug administration cracked down and, and made it a, a banned controlled substance. So this put it on the same kind of, well, I don't want to speak exactly because I don't know exactly where on the, the level it was, but it was certainly not, uh, it was harder to be studied and it was not something you could buy legally for sure. <laughs> and so th- it went underground and basically all research on it stopped for many a decade until qu- relatively recently. So I think the, um, the, the year 2006 popped up a fair few times in this book as when, uh, okay, we're starting to get more mm, licenses or well, the ability to actually study these. We can actually do more studies uh, on not just LSD, but on also these other um, substances, particularly psilocybin, um, so the magic mushrooms. Now, what does it help? What's the actual purpose of these? Like you, if you're taking a drug, you, you, there's usually a scientific reason for it where you want an objective reason for taking something. And recreational use is, um, is certainly has a value in itself, but in the main portion, they, uh, they're suggesting that this can be very helpful with depression, with addiction, and then also with existential angst. So this is kind of those people who are dying on their deathbeds and are having, you know, this, um, I guess, worry is what you might call it, anxiety, something like that. So how this actually works is that there is a place called the default mode network. So I'm going to jump here to page 303 and 304 and I can read this out. Um, So the default mode network appears to play a role in the creation of mental constructual projections, the most important of which is the contract construct we call the self or ego. Uh, This is why some neuroscientists call it the me network. If a researcher gives you a list of adjectives and asks you to consider how they apply to you, it is your default mode network that leaps into the action and lights up. And basically it's that kind of when you're, when you're uh, just daydreaming thinking, that's typically when you'll see this portion of your brain light up. And basically what these substances do, the, the psychedelics is they deactivate it. So, uh, it gives more kind of free range to kind of creativity in a way and uh, opening up pathways and networks in your brain that perhaps ha- are either underused or have not been used at all. And so there was a very good analogy in the book of how uh, you could have, a, you know, skiers going down a, a, a ski slope and as more and more people go, they, you know, they'll tend to create more and more tracks in a 
uh, you know, a certain line. And so then, you know, the people who are coming further uh, behind, they, they're likely to fall into these same tracks and follow these same paths. Whereas something like a DMT, for example, will kind of deactivate it. So imagine a, a bunch of fresh snow being put all over these, um, a temporary experience of fresh snow being put over all of these tracks. And so then the the, the people coming down the ski slope now have a, the ability to explore elsewhere on the ski slope, that, that sort of thing. So there, there definitely does seem to be a, a reason for this. And there's many pros and some cons as, as to what psychedelics do and, and what they uh, are useful for. So some of the cons, uh, pros, I should say, are they're usually single dose. You don't need a <laughs> continual supply of it. They usually have pretty long lasting effects and they don't seem to be addictive, so they're non-addictive. So there is no kind of physiological um, activations that occur, which is like I need to now have more LSD or magic mushrooms or whatnot. There is there, there doesn't seem to be any of that going on, in comparison to things like caffeine or alcohol. Now this is, is a problem, especially for the kind of pharmacological um, industry as it stands at the moment, who actually want all of these other things. They don't want a long-lasting drug. They want a, one that can be sold repeatedly, so a multi-dose type of thing. And the, they do want an addictive one because people will keep coming back to it. And so this is why you see things like SSRIs and um, the opiate, opiate crisis happening in America where you know people are getting hooked on um, fentanyl and some very, very nasty stuff. Now, what are some of the cons? Well, you can see that it can be, you can imagine, it'd be very destabilizing. So if you are having visual hallucinations, if your normal everyday experience is, is being, uh, you're transported, your ego is dissolving, you can imagine this is a very destabilizing experience. And uh, I can see how this would not work for a whole lot of people, especially ones who uh, maybe have already mental, pre-existing mental issues and and things like that uh it's very labor intensive typically this if you if you're a scientist studying this you need to have multiple people in the room to combat the experience or at least help out with the experience of a bad trip uh there's a lot of pe political bag baggage that's not a particularly scientific thing but it, it exists nevertheless and it can cause radical changes and so we do have a fair few stories in the book of uh volunteers going into into some of these studies and then they have a you know a, an experience on lsd or psilocybin or something like that and one lady in particular is getting picked up her by her husband her husband came late and on the car ride back she announced her intention to divorce him which was something she realized from this from this trip now does this mean if you take psilocybin you're going to make radical changes and divorce your husband Probably not. That was probably a long brewing <laughs> sort of issue that was highlighted. And uh, I'll talk more about that in the subjective part coming up in the next theme. So I suppose the main actual scientific thing to do with with all of this is it's very difficult to study. Very, very difficult. So if I jump to page 333 here, there's a pretty good section here where it explains why. So yet... Yet even as psychedelic therapies are being tested by modern science, the very strangeness of these molecules and their actions upon the mind is at the same time testing whether Western medicine can deal with the implicit changes they pose. 
To cite one obvious example, conventional drug trials of psychedelics are difficult, if not impossible, to blind. So this is to make sure that um, well, I'll, I'll keep reading. Most participants can tell whether they've received psilocybin or a placebo and so can their guides. So you, you can't have double blind studies, which is the kind of peak mm, best way of, of uh, doing the scientific method where neither the experimenter nor the volunteer knows what they've, they've got. And so this can rule out many um, biases introduced by expectations and placebo effects and things like this. Also, in testing these drugs, how can researchers hope to tease out the chemicals effect from the critical influence of set and setting? So the set and setting is a, uh, a an idea that's been in the kind of psychedelic community for a long time, which is if you're taking one of these drugs, you want to have your, your setting, your actual environment reflective of a, well, something that'll be conducive to a either a an experience that you kind of want. So you probably don't want to be in, I don't know, a prison cell being tortured whilst taking, taking a psychedelic. That's probably not the greatest setting. Uh, maybe somewhere more outdoorsy and, uh, and a bit more natural is maybe a, a better environment for you to be in. You don't want to be at uh, perhaps taking these when you're next to some neighbors who are having a violent argument or in a really loud place and you hate loud noises. You get the idea. And then your set is your mindset coming into it. What do I want to gain from this experience? Is it, uh, am I trying to solve a problem? Am I taking this for some fun? Am I, uh, uh, you know, trying to figure out some problems that are deep within me and, and resolve them? Will I run away from these problems? All of these sorts of things play a, play an important part into the experience that comes from taking a psychedelic. Continuing on, uh, Western science and modern drug testing depend on the ability to isolate a single variable, but it isn't clear that the effects of a psychedelic drug can ever be isolated, whether from the context in which it is administered, the presence of the therapists involved, or the volunteers' expectations. Any of these factors can muddy the waters of causality. And how is Western medicine to evaluate a psychiatric drug that appears to work not by means of any strictly pharmacological effect but by administering a certain kind of experience in the minds of people who take it so yeah there's quite a few things that are that are going on here i've written some ex, uh, extra notes of other problems that were being um, talked about of, of why it's hard to study uh, they have to use e ecgs which is a, a method of determining kind of blood, uh, blood flow blood flow in the brain and therefore a way of determining how much activity is going on in certain sections of the brain whilst something is happening. In this case, uh, if someone's on a psychedelic and that is generally not, not the best method to use it. You'd actually want kind of implodes in, um, uh, what are those called? Uh, implants of, of nodes put into the actual directly linking to the brain itself and getting electrical signals signals like they do for rats and mice and other animals that they test upon. Uh, but obviously for humans, that is a little bit more difficult. <laughs> uh, there's also a lot of room for things being uh, influencing the outcome. So this is, uh, you know, if you're trying to measure someone using an ECG scan, they need to be, you know, sitting still in a very enclosed environment with machines whirring around their head to, to study this. That's going to influence it. The, the lab room itself, that's going to influence it. The uh, kind of artifacts and things in the room. So people bring in, 
you know, little religious um, symbols and symbolism and there's birth stories and everything that you have heard about what a psychedelic is pre-hand coming in and te- trying it out for the first time as a volunteer, that's going to influence it. <laughs> so it's very hard to take the human out of out of any of these things, whether it be on the volunteer side or the observer practicus, um, uh, the, the scientist side as well. Very, very difficult to, to reproduce any of these things, which is the core of the scientific method. I create a study. I say, this is how you do it. You follow these exact, exact steps and then someone in India can do it. Someone in Pakistan can do it. Someone in the bottom of the ocean can bloody do it. Like it doesn't matter. That's the point of the, the scientific method. And yet these are relying on consciousness kind of that's that's where, where it's all coming down to the boiling point this is all about consciousness and subjective <laughs> subjectivity so very very hard thing to study it, it can be done and there are efforts to it but it, it uh, it's difficult which gets us bang on to our next section section which is the subjective what can we say so the last part was what can we say for certain what can we say now well the first thing is it tends to draw in unique enigmatic individuals. I've already slightly mentioned Timothy Leary and his, his um, Wikipedia page or his bio is worth uh, diving into. And I know he has many um, uh, biographies and things like that. Uh, a very enigmatic individual there. Um, and it's the question, I guess, is also does it draw in out of the box people already or does it kind of create them? So is someone who, who has taken psilocybin or LSD or DMT when they were in their you know, college university days, does that create someone who is now going to be more interested in these things and then follow it and they are kind of by default a little bit more out of the box? And when I say out of the box, I, I do mean some people who are very out of the box. Uh, Paul Stamets is a, a, mush, a mushroom guy. He's a mycologist, but also his whole world is everything about him is mushrooms. You know, he wears clothes made out of mushroom leather type of deal. And uh, psilocybin is obviously part of the, the magic mushroom. So he knows a fair bit about that. Uh, one of the ladies who was helping out with some of these studies and designing the studies and funding these studies uh, was a girl who had um, these ideas related to uh blood flow in the brain and trepanning, which is, uh, or tree panning, where you drill a hole in your brain to kind of release, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I don't know what that is, super not scientific, a very, uh, a very more cult uh, shamanic type deal that's that's been used in religions and whatnot. Um, and yet she did this, I believe it was in the 70s or maybe the 60s, uh, so, and did it to herself as well with a drill, electronic, um, electric drill. Yes, I get you also have more people, I, I suppose, on the more professional side, if you want to call it that term. So these are people like Roland Griffiths, um, even Tim Ferriss, if you know him, uh, is is very interested in these sort of scientific studies. And and there is a, a growing, I suppose, there's the people who uh, use these substances, take them, and they they will add, attribute more weight to the mysticism portion of it, the kind of relig- religiosity, the very hard to define and and measure aspect. And then there's others who are definitely more on the side of okay, like let's try and isolate variables, let's try and 
study this, make these reproducible, do really good science because it will have some benefits to to humanity and to um, people if 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 this can be you know knowledge is is power I suppose so uh, yeah there's a in any case a lot of unique ind- individuals come at it so that's one subjective kind of portion. Something definitely happens. When you take a psychedelic, there is no denying that something is happening. Now, what does it mean? What weight can you put on this? There was a very intriguing uh, aspect here on page 41 that I'd never heard of before uh, called the noetic quality. So uh, to quote from the book here, here's what I don't get about an experience like Bob Jesse's. Why in the world would you ever credit it at all? I didn't understand why you wouldn't simply file it under interesting dream or drug-induced fantasy. But along with the feeling of ineffability, the conviction that some profound objective truth has been disclosed to you is a hallmark of the mystical experience, regardless of whether it has been occasioned by a drug, meditation, fasting, flagellation, or sensory deprivation. William James gave a name to this conviction, the noetic quality. People feel they have been let in on a deep secret, deep secret of the universe and they cannot be shaken from that conviction. As James wrote, dreams cannot stand this test. No doubt this is why some people who have such an experience go on to found religions, changing the course of history, or in a great many more cases, the course of their own lives. No doubt is the key. So something happens, obviously. You, you see hallucinations, you feel different things, you have a d- dissolving of the ego, uh, you'll experience um, some very interesting stuff like synesthesia where you can see sounds or, um, you know, senses get mixed up. And it, it's obviously, um, some, obviously something is happening, but why don't people treat it the way they treat dreams, which is, oh, I had a dream where I was an elephant or fighting an elephant or um, I made love to an elephant they don't they don't take that as anything meaningful and efforts in the past to analyze dreams have always been a little bit kind of sketchy looking at you freud <laughs> and yet when people come away from a psychedelic experience they have this noetic quality something has happened why like and it means something it means something deep and it can change their lives and and make them think about this so my question, I guess, from this is, well, one, that's, that's definitely a subjective thing. There's, and most of them can't explain why as well is a, is a very common theme of this. So when asked, why didn't you just put this down to a fantasy or a dream or, a, or something like that? And they go, um, I, I can't explain why, but I, I know why. I know deep, under, deep in myself why. The most subjective thing you can, <laughs> you can get out. So my question is, can this backfire? So when people are, are, are kind of using this or the scientists using this, they're, they're kind of aiming on this to be a, a beneficial thing in some sort of sense. So the mystical experience adds weight to kind of pre-existing ideas anyway. So if you're feeling depressed, you want to not feel depressed. And so it's, it's kind of adding weight to that not feeling depressed section and so people have come away from this being, uh, you know, for the first time in my life, I, um, you know, I accepted my depression or I, I, I smiled for the first time in, in many a year. And this has things to do with the default mode network. So this is that overanalyzing ego quality I was talking about before and, and deactivating that. 
which then allows people to kind of get out of their own head, if you want to put it that way. But then also uh, there's some great stories in here of people who intellectually know that smoking is idiotic and they can list every single, and so this is the addiction portion, they know it's bad for you, it costs a lot, it's, you know produces um, bad teeth and un unhealthy hygiene and things like that. They know all of this and yet they will still smoke. This has kind of allowed to them to find an... Uh, getting past the intellectual and, and, and hitting the kind of feeling stage where it was, oh, it, it, it lost its importance to me smoking. And it's, it's really funny how this kind of quality of adding weight to something can, can work this way, this very subjective quality. Yet my question is, can this also increase negative things? So if you come into it with uh, some perhaps faulty ideas related to uh, um, I don't know, you know, your, your arrogance or your paranoia or jealousy and um, thinking that these are, are helpful in some sort of way. Can this increase the, these negative, what we would judge from the outside as negative things? So someone comes in who is already paranoid and then it ramps that up an extra, you know, 20%. Is that something that these drugs can do or do they have this kind of mystical quality of only working on the good things? I very much doubt that. And, and this is why the importance of set and setting is, is so important as well. So a lot of, <laughs> a lot of subjective things going on <laughs> people, a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of things like that. I'm going to jump now into my own observations and takeaways. And I do want to just highly stress this is us centric so the united states the author is from the united states most of the people mentioned are from the united states and the it doesn't contain any history related to australia or psychedelic use in scandinavia or in um you know africa where there's ones like ibogaine and things like that and it, it doesn't even really touch on ayahuasca uh at all really there's a couple of mentions so just just know that um and then the funny thing with this is it it highlighted one thing which Amer america is is very good at and one of their mainstay cultural exports uh, or or i don't even know if i'd call it an export but the, the consumerism american consumerism and so we see on page 114 where people are starting to learn about the uh, magic mushrooms in particular and there was a lady called maria sabina in mexico in Huatla, Huatla, um, which is a, a very <laughs> a dialect of um, kind of old Mexico. So uh, they were talking about how they went down there and um, basically uh, for Maria Sabina and her village, the attention was ruinous. Uh, Watson would later hold himself responsible for unleashing on lovely Huatla a torrent of commercial exploitation of the vilest kind, as he wrote in a plaintive or plaintive 1970 New York Times op-ed. What they'd become first a beatnik, then a hippie mecca, and the sacred mushrooms, once a closely guarded secret, were now being sold openly on the street. Um, her neighbors blamed her for this, and she, um, yeah, they lost their force. The foreigners spoiled them. Um, from now on, they won't be any good. Um, that's in her own, her own quotes. So you can see how when, <laughs> when people find out about these things, there is a tendency uh, to to abuse this somewhat 
And then there's another one here where it, it's uh, going even even more mainstream and actors are getting involved. And so there was a, uh, the most famous of these patients was Cary Grant, who gave an interview in 1959 to the syndicated gossip columnist Joe Himmons, um, extolling the benefits of LSD therapy. Grant had more than 60 sessions and by the end declared himself born again. And then this is in his quotes. All the sadness and vanities were torn away, the 55-year-old actor told Hyams in an interview all the more surprising in the light of Cary Grant's image as a reserved and proper Englishman. I've had my ego stripped away. A man is a better actor without ego because he has truth in him. Now I cannot behave untruthfully toward anyone and certainly not to myself. All right, you're starting to see some little bit signs of BS popping in, but continuing on. From the sound of it, LSD had turned Cary Grant into an American. I'm no longer lonely and I am a happy man, Grant declared. He said the experience had allowed him to overcome his narcissism, had greatly improving not only his acting, but his relationships with women. Young women have never been so attracted to me. Not surprisingly, Grant's interview, which received boatloads of national publicity, created a surge in demand for LSD therapy and for just plain LSD. Hyman's received more than 800 letters from readers eager to know how they might obtain it. Psychiatrists called, complaining that their patients were now begging them for LSD. Yes. Um, <laughs> just, just, this, just this guy talking about how he's taken LSD and is now super attractive. And uh, I believe he was an older gentleman as well, like in his kind of 50s or 60s. Um, there's, there's something about that American consumer, consumerism, which is um, very ugly, very ugly. I'm, I'm not a fan of it. Uh, and, you know, maybe I'm picking on America, but um, it's an American book. And when consumerism shows its head, it's, uh, it's, it's easy to point the blame that way. <laughs> uh, and in any case, uh, another observation, my final one um, is the tone of this book is, is, I think, of the correct tone. As If you read it as a whole, it's kind of cautiously optimistic. So the author, Michael Pollan, he talks uh, for long periods about how he had never any interest in these um, in these at all. He'd kind of been brainwashed, if you want to put it, by the, the propaganda of the, the 60s. Uh, and he only started trying some of these when he himself was, I believe, in his late 50s or in his early 60s. So and so relatively recently in the last decade or two was when he was kind of writing this book. Now, this cautious optimism is, is my general take to, to drugs as well. Um, I wouldn't dive in willy-nilly to any of these things. They're, although they, they can seem to be very fun, although they can seem to have some benefits in terms of, um, you know, treating depression, addiction or existential angst, Opt cautious being cautious never uh has has stopped uh, has never caused problems for me personally uh and the uh, diving in willy-nilly and leading and exposing yourself to the possibility of a bad trip as your very first get-go it seems to be a a recipe for disaster and for for something that could cause some serious long-term mental issues and I would highly, highly recommend that you, if you're interested in any of these things, you know, doing it if you can under the, in a professional type setting. And then if that is not possible, don't, don't dive in all the way. Don't, don't take a heroic dose in the immediate, um, 
as your first go. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Uh, so in summary, it's a, a compelling trip, this book that walks the fine line between objective, subjective, and the scientific and mystical. So although it may seem daunting from the trip reports that are described within, the downsides seem relatively limited uh, compared to other drugs, in my opinion. Science is catching up to the collective wisdom of the thousands of years of cultural use, of, of healing, as, as many of them put it. And it's really exciting to see this. It, it is exciting to see that there is a, a new method of, of understanding the world of, of natural substances for the most part and, and seeing how these can be used for the betterment of humans in a scientific way um, without a lot of the woo-woo and bullshit that tends to accompany these things. So the book, How to Change Your Mind, The New Science of Psychedelics by Michael Pollan. I'm giving it a very solid 7 out of 10. I enjoyed it. And that's it for today, my mere mortal eyes. Thank you for joining me to this part of the audio. What are your thoughts on Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind? Have you taken psychedelics? Have you researched into the scientific studies of psychedelics? Does this intrigue you? I would love to know all of these things. The best way to do that is to send in a boostergram. So a boostergram is a message uh, attached with a, a payment of Satoshis, which you can send in via any of the newpodcastapps.com. And it's a way of helping to support the show whilst also uh, getting into direct contact with me. And I like to read these messages out on the end of month book recap, as well as adding a little bit of extra insights. This is a value for value podcast. Everything that you can do to provide some value back to me. Hence, I'm making these these reviews free for you. You can access them anytime, anywhere you want, and you will always be able to without any advertising sponsorships. I'm not uh, I'm not being sponsored by LSD at the moment. <laughs> uh, and yes, so uh, anything that you can do to provide value back, sharing it with a friend, if you have worked in the psychedelic um, industry or done studies yourself and can provide any insight into these these um, substances or this book itself, I would love to know it and, and, and telling me that. And you can also help support the show by, as I mentioned, sending in a boostergram. So uh, and, and streaming Satoshis if you want to just uh, passively support whilst listening. So any of those uh, would be very, very much uh, highly appreciated by me, newpodcastapps.com. And I just hope you're having a fantastic trip wherever you are in the world. Kyron out. <laughs>